This episode of Twill is going to be a banger and kind of a bummer. We've got some new releases from Linux Mint, SystemD, Debian, and more. We've also got some new security stories to talk about from Bluetooth flaws and firmware attacks to even 23andMe is back in the show for less than ideal reasons. All of this and much more on this episode of This Week in Linux, your source for Linux good news. This episode of Twill is brought to you by Linbit. More on them later. This episode of Twill is minty fresh with Linux Mint 21.3 beta being released. So Linux Mint 21.3 is going to have the Cinnamon 6 desktop, which means, yes, in this beta release, you can try out the experimental Wayland support from Cinnamon 6. And I am definitely going to try that out because the Cinnamon 6 desktop is really nice, but not having Wayland support meant that it was going to be a problem in the future. And to see that they're doing that is just great. So I do want to try it out and see how far it's gotten with that. And also, I want to try out the latest version of Linux Mint, but I to tell myself as well as you that this is a beta release. It is not meant to be used in production, so don't go in that into this with that mindset. Be sure to remember it is beta. Now, let's talk about the cool stuff in Linux Mint 21.3. First of all, there's new cinnamon spices. There's also a new option for 75% scaling. Well, technically it's not new, it's been re-added, but that's still good. Also the ability to choose which monitor is being used for notifications has been added. And there's also a new desktop zoom action gesture as well as many, many more things. But one of the things that I'm excited about that is kind of like an underlying core type of thing is the support for secure boot. Because a lot of people, uh, understandably so, have not liked the fact that Linux Mint requires you to turn off Secure Boot because it creates an issue in terms of people getting started with Linux. And this is a really good thing to have because this means that they have support and it, users won't have to go into their BIOS and turn it off and all that stuff just to get started. So I do really like that. And that's a fantastic update for Linux Mint as a distro. Another thing I wanted to talk about is their Hypnotics app, because Linux Mint 21.3 features a new release of the Hypnotics app, which is an interesting name for a TV watching application. But anyway, it supports custom channels now, also favoriting, and there's been an update to YouTube or YT-DLP. Now, this is really important because Hypnotics was based on you having to have an IPTV subscription somewhere and connecting the channels that way. But now you can have custom channels that can basically be any URL. It doesn't even have to be a live stream. It can be whatever you want. So if you want to have a playlist of music or something from YouTube, you can do that. You can do all sorts of stuff. It's really cool. And also Hypnotics uses libmpv, which itself relies on YouTube or YT-DLP to stream YouTube channels. But this is not the exactly the best solution. So they've kind of gave a compensation for it because YT-DLP is fantastic. I'm not saying it's not the best solution. I'm saying the fact that it moves so fast because YouTube tries to break it all the time. I mean, I understand why they would try to break it, but YT-DLP has to update very frequently in order to compensate for these breaks and that sort of stuff. So... That becomes an issue when you talk about Linux Mint because the core base of the system is every two years and the, usually the packages are every 
six months. So that kind of becomes a problem, right? Well, they have taken that in consideration and they've made some changes and work on the DLP, the Y2-DLP packaging being outdated. And what they're doing is that it's making it for the ability for Hypnotics to download and update its own local version of YT-DLP. Now, this is going to be separate from the main version of that package, and it will be exclusive to Hypnotics, but that is a really interesting way to address it because the Hypnotics application using that would quickly break after release probably. So this is a, an interesting way of taking care of that. Now, there's a lot of other cool stuff like Warpinator lets you connect to a device manually now over IP or QR code and a lot more. We don't really have time to talk about everything, but in the next release, when they finally do have the production ready, we might talk about it in more depth. So be sure to subscribe to the channel and to the show, and I'll see you in the next, whenever that happens. <laughs> but for now, if you'd like to learn more about the latest beta release, you can find links in the show notes. Let's talk about SystemD, or more specifically, SystemD 255 as the latest release from the project. Now, for those who are unfamiliar, SystemD is a software suite that provides an array of system components for Linux operating systems. Now, the main aim is to unify service configuration and behavior across Linux distributions. Its primary component is a system and service manager, an init system used to bootstrap user space and manage user processes. Now, this is a really interesting project because it can do a lot of cool stuff. Really, like a vast variety of things. And it also has a lot of people who hate it. <laughs> now, a lot of the times, they, some people have some reasons, like they don't want to change their scripts for their init stuff. And like, okay, I can see why that would be annoying. But there's also some people who say that it's too monolithic. It has too much it does, and it's too complex and things like that. And I just think, it, I was like, look at the Linux kernel and go, sup, bro? I mean, what's up with that then? If you love Linux, and you know, it kind of does the same things, you know, it's, it's complex, it's big, it's powerful. It's, uh... Anyway, so let's talk about the latest release of SystemD 255. It comes with a lot of improvements, and let's talk about a few. There's actually two I really want to talk about, but we're going to save those for a little bit. First, let's talk about the new component, SystemD-StorageTM has been added that exposes all lock block devices as NVMe-TCP. This is a very nifty feature that is inspired by macOS with the new SystemD storage target mode. There's also been an overhaul to the way SystemD services are spawned. Rather than forking the process that shared all of the, the manager's memory via COW or copy on write before executing the target executable, the new process is now spawned using clone underscore VM and clone underscore V fork via the POSIX underscore spawn function. There's also a new update for SystemD boot has new hotkeys for B to reboot and O to power off. And this is just really nice for people who have to deal with stuff on a quick basis and we don't want to wait for the system to boot. And also there's been much, much more. But there are also these other two that I want to talk about, which are a new SystemD-VM spawn tool has been added that provides the ability for a VMs and the same interfaces and functionality that systemd Dash in spawn provides for containers. The systemd v spawn tool uses QEMU as its backend and allows you to launch virtual machines through systemd. 
Now, it is experimental, so just keep that in mind if you do want to try it out. But there's also another thing I want to talk about, which I think everyone can appreciate, and that is the new component called SystemD-BSOD. Now, you might not know what the BSOD means, but it stands for Blue Screen of Death. As this has been added to show logged error messages full screen if they have the log level set up. And this is intended as a tool for displaying emergency log messages full screen on boot failures, which is, yes, the blue screen of death. This was basically a, a joke based on how Windows used to crash and still basically does the blue screen of death, but it's much more different now than it used to be. And it doesn't happen as much. It was a very common occurrence from Windows 95 up to probably Windows 7. I think it's I think Windows 7 is when they kind of started fixing it. But still, this is great, but I also have a request. I would like for them to make it customizable by the distribution so the color could be a different one. So like, for example, Ubuntu could have an orange screen of death and Fedora could still have the blue screen of death, but then OpenSUSE would have a green screen of death. I, why would I want this? I, I don't know. It just sounds fun for some reason. Also to customize it and be able to add like custom uh, ASCII art or something like that, that'd be fun too. So keep that in mind, System D, on your next release. If you do try to upgrade the visuals of the blue screen of death. If you'd like to learn more about the latest release of System D or just System D in general, you'll find links in the show notes. Debian 12.4 has been released, and this is an interesting release. It's, it's a maintenance release, minor update type of thing, so it's not a huge big deal in terms of the core underlying features, but there was some interesting stuff that happened because Debian 12.3 was delayed due to an extended for data corruption bug that was found in Linux 6.1 series. Now, the Debian 12.3 has been replaced by Debian 12.4, and comes with a dozen of bug fixes in addition to the data corruption issue. Now, the Debian 12.4 was released in place of the Debian 12.3 after pulling in Linux 6.1.66 that isn't affected by the extended for corruption bug. Also, Debian 12.4 fixes a local privilege escalation vulnerability in Amanda. It also has support for Unicode 15.1 in different components, support for Z standard compression in libsolve, and a bunch of bugs and security fixes and that sort of stuff, which is typical for a maintenance release. If you'd like to learn more about the latest release of Debian 12.4, you'll find links in the show notes. The Nextcloud team have announced the latest release of their Nextcloud Hub system with Nextcloud Hub 7. Now, I'm using Nextcloud Hub 6, and it is very cool, and there's some stuff in 7 that I just can't wait to use. We're going to get to that in a second, but I first want to let you know that there is no way we can cover everything in the Nextcloud Hub 7 in this, sh this episode because, well, we don't have an hour to talk about this particular topic, and I'm not kidding. They made a video talking about all the stuff, and it took an hour <laughs> to watch it, or 55 minutes, so almost an hour. And if you want to watch that, I'll have that linked in the show notes, as well as links to the actual release announcement for this this Nextcloud Hub 7 uh, version. But let's talk about the cool stuff in this that I'm excited for, with the biggest one being the advanced search 
or the unified search improvements. With Nextcloud Hub 7, they've improved the unified search, which finds chat messages, emails, calendar items, documents, and even external content like support tickets and memes if you want. You can also bring up the search wherever you are in Nextcloud, which is awesome. And they also have the search integrated with various different platforms like GitHub, GitLab, Giphy, Reddit, and more. And once the service is connected to the Nextcloud Hub, a new search filter will be available in the list of possible uh, search locations under the apps and settings fields. So this is really cool because uh, the search functionality has always been a little bit lacking in certain ways in terms of like the historically in Nextcloud. It's one of the things that I, I kind of complained about in the few, in the beginning of using it. But with Nextcloud Hub 6, it got much better. And with this, it seems to be much better. So I can't wait to try that. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to upgrade yet, but I look forward to when I do. So the next thing we're going to talk about is the out of office status, because this has a change that allows you to not only just have an out of office email that you send to someone, you can also have calendar events and messages in the Nextcloud talk system as well as others. So this is pretty cool. So you may be wondering, what is Nextcloud doing with AI these days? Well, a lot is the answer to that. Some of this has already been available for Nextcloud and some of it is brand new to Hub 7, but let's talk about some of the stuff you can do. We'll do it in a rapid fire thing. So there's, for example, call transcripts, uh, text generation, face recognition, uh, dictation, related sources, resources based on the files you have, uh, translation stuff, recommended files, smart inbox in the mail application, uh, ob object recognition, and in Nextcloud Hub 7, there's a left alpha service being included, as well as on-premise stable diffusion model by the Stability AI people for local image generation if you want that, and that's awesome. So a lot of cool stuff is being added to Nextcloud, and I can't wait to try Nextcloud Hub 7. I already said that before, but I, okay, I'm just reiterating it because of these things, <laughs> especially the stable diffusion thing. I'm very excited to try that. Uh, in terms of Nextcloud, I've used Stable Diffusion. It's very cool. If you, if you haven't tried it out, go do that. Also, there's a, a new thing that you can do with the users on your system who have access to the AI because you can control how many times they can request various different things to the AI so your system doesn't get overloaded, like having hundreds of people doing hundreds of things at the same time, for example. So that's pretty cool too. And there's so much stuff that's in this next version of Nextcloud Hub. I can't really give you everything, but a few more is that Nextcloud Files has been completely rewritten, for example. Also, they've added PDF annotation support and so much more. So if you want to check it out, links in the show notes for more details and also links to download it for yourself. And also that 55-minute video from Nextcloud talking about everything that's in this release. This episode of Twill is brought to you by Linbit. Linbit has been keeping digital businesses running for over 20 years. They're the makers of open source products like DRBD, which is high availability software that has been part of the Linux kernel since 2010, and Linstore, industry-leading open source software-defined storage. Linbit has an active presence in the open source community as well because they collaborate with the community to help identify and build new features to their products. Limbit provides enterprise-grade software that runs on a variety of platforms without vendor lock-in, which is really cool because no matter what your OS is and no matter what kind of hardware you want to use, including off-the-shelf hardware, you're good to go with DRBD and Linstore. 
And also with DRBD and LinStore, you can have high-speed replicated block storage in almost any configuration, whether it's Kubernetes, Apache Cloud, or Open Nebula. There's even DRBD proxy for long-distance replication. LinBit provides really awesome services like DRBD, and DRBD is a really good way to make sure you have good data recovery and backups. And if you ever have like a cluster with multiple nodes and one of those nodes fails, you can have rest assurance that the backup nodes will have the data that you want. So if you're interested in checking out any of the software from LinBit, I highly recommend it. So go to linbit.com to check it out. That's L-I-N-B-I-T.com. Now it's time for a new section of the show called, well, that's a bummer. Because we're going to talk about some security vulnerabilities. First, a critical Bluetooth security vulnerability has been found. It affects Linux, Android, macOS, and iOS. The keystroke injection vulnerability allows an attacker to control the targeted device as if they were attached by a Bluetooth keyboard, performing various functions remotely depending on the endpoint. Now, this bug doesn't require any special hardware to exploit, and the attack can be pulled off from a Linux machine using a regular Bluetooth adapter, says Mark Newland, the person who found the flaw and reported it to Apple, Google, Canonical, etc. It works by tricking the Bluetooth host state machine into pairing with a fake keyboard without user confirmation. Android has been vulnerable for this issue. He says that as far as back as version 4.2.2, which was released in 2012. So the same flaw has also been in Linux, but it also has been patched since 2020. But then the fix was left disabled by default for some reason that Newland also discovered. So hopefully that will be addressed quickly by every distribution since it's already there and could just be turned on. That's nice. Uh, Also, if you'd like to learn more about this information, we'll have links in the show notes, but there's some more bummer news coming up. So get ready. The next vulnerability is called LogoFail. It's a firmware attack. And this is interesting because of the way it does the attack. So this affects most x86 and ARM systems, including Windows and Linux-based systems. These vulnerabilities can exploit UEFI firmware with an image file. So that's pretty interesting. Now, what it does is that it is using the image parser inside of the firmware by storing an image on the UEFI system partition or unsigned parts of the firmware updates. You can exploit UEFI using exploits in the image parser. Now, this works because the BIOS uses an image file to display the logo on your computer and or you know motherboard vendor type of thing. So, for example, Let's say you have Ubuntu installed and you have the Ubuntu showing in the boot up, or you'll see when you boot your system that the MSI, for example, as a motherboard manufacturer would show on the screen and that's how it's done. So this is basically using the image parser for those and doing an attack with it. Now it is worth noting that this cannot modify the bootloader or the firmware, but it can get access to the ESP partition to disable UEFI security features change device boot order, and also deliver stealth firmware rootkits, and much more. So it can get very bad with these this kind of thing. But at the same time, this does, based on my research, this and the previous thing we talked about with the Bluetooth does require close access to the device, and it's not a remote execution system or vulnerability. So it's not as drastic as it could be, but this is pretty bad if someone gets access to your machine. So, update your stuff. (laughs) Just, I'll just be saying that a lot this episode. (laughs) So if you'd like to learn more about this particular news, you'll find links in the show notes. 23andMe is back in the news this week. Also, still not good. 
From last week, we talked about a hack that happened. Uh, they suffered a credential stuffing attack that leaked millions of customer data because of the DNA relatives feature. There was also another breach that happened last week that was affected another 6.9 million users. That first one was in October. But because of this, 23andMe is now changing not how they deal with security, but instead how they deal with lawsuits because it's much more important to take care of people lawsuit-wise and to fight back against the people you screwed over than it is to fix your security. Specifically over the October breach, this is what the changes are doing with the lawsuits. Now, that's just, by the way, that was my opinion. That's not what they're actually doing. It's just what it seems like to me. Now, 23andMe have decided to update their terms of service to make it harder to sue them in the future. Of course they did. The initial dispute period is now 60 days instead of 30 days. And you must have a video call with an employee first before you can sue them. Basically, arbitration with the company before you sue them. Okay, now on top of that, the lawsuits must now be individual lawsuits and cannot be class action lawsuits as the terms of service says. Which is interesting because it shows that they don't like class because they don't have class, which is why they don't want class action lawsuits involved. So, I mean, that's my opinion, of course. This is just, to me, it feels very, um, not very good in terms of like giving me confidence in the company if the decision they decided to do was fix their terms of service about lawsuits rather than their systems. Now, they also said something that is very important, and this is why I wanted to put it on the show, because it's within that window and it's very important. So they said the emails sent to customers have about uh, 30 days to respond to, this, to the legal at 23andme.com email address and say that they disagree with the new terms. If you disagree within that 30-day period, you will apparently remain on the previous terms of service. So I would like everyone who has ever used this service to do that so that this terms of service is now null and void and their ridiculous attempt to fight their customers rather than actually protect them goes, uh, oh, goes away. It has no value. That would be nice. That'd be nice. So again, this is all my opinion of a company that is now changing their terms of service to stop people from suing them for things that they do wrong rather than fixing their security. Just my opinion. Anyway, if you are affected, legal at 23andme.com. If you'd like to learn more, links in the show notes. Do you like having privacy? Do you like having a, a messaging system that has end-to-end encryption? Well, Meta wants you to know about their new update to the Facebook Messenger because they've added end-to-end -end encryption by default in Messenger, which is fantastic and only a decade too late for actual privacy, because they've been collecting people's messages for years. Uh, as, as, I've, as I understand it, you know, that's just my, that's my opinion of the information I have read about Facebook. So Facebook Messenger has now added encryption, which is really good. Uh, this affects one-to-one -one messages and video calls through Facebook and Messenger. It does not include encrypted group messages or encrypted Instagram messages, but they do say that that will come later, which is nice. And on top of that, Facebook has added other privacy features, which is really cool. 
for their messaging specifically, including uh, encrypted backups, turning off read receipts, disappearing messages, and the encryption comes with modified version of the Signal protocol, which is the same protocol that the Signal app uses, as you would imagine, and the same version or the same thing protocol that is being used in WhatsApp, which is also probably the same version that's being added to the Messenger app. Now, this is really cool. I'm happy to see that Facebook slash Meta has now implemented encryption to their messaging system. I used to use off-the-record or OTR encryption when I was using Facebook messengers back in the day, but they decided to break that. So I don't know if it was because they wanted to get all your data or if it's because there was some kind of technical issue and they couldn't do encryption back then, even though I was already doing it myself manually. But it's great that they have added encryption to their messenger now because that's a huge bonus for people who have to talk with someone on Facebook for whatever reason. And that so overall, it took way too long for this to happen, but it's good that it happened. So I like that. If you'd like to learn more about this news, you'll find links in the show notes. W4 Games has announced that they have raised $15 million for pushing and helping the open source video game development engine Godot. So this is fantastic because last year, for those who don't know, developers of Godot Engine formed a company called W4 Games to strengthen the Godot ecosystem. This company plans on making commercial services based around Godot and providing services like games console porting. So W4 has managed to raise this year $15 million announcing this week after they raised $8.5 million last year to start the company. Now, this money will go into developing their console porting solution, cloud solutions, as well as going into the development of the Godot engine itself, which is fantastic. And on top of that, they say that in the next 18 months or so, they're going to be doubling their headcount, which is the people who are working on Godot and in involved in W4 games. So that is fantastic. And I can't wait for Godot to have even more progress because it's a really cool engine already. But thanks to the folks at Unity being ridiculous and making everyone hate them and Epic Games always being that, it's really good to see that Godot is getting that uh, attention and push. And I'm happy to see to hear about the news of W4 Games getting that much funding to help the development of Godot. And if you'd like to learn more about this particular news or Godot itself, you'll find links in the show notes. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on this show and want to be kept up to date with what's going on in the Linux and open source world, then be sure to subscribe. And of course, remember to like that smash button. If you'd like to support the show and the network, you can go to tuxdigital.com slash membership to become a patron, where you can get a bunch of cool perks like access to patron-only sections of our Discord server and much, much more. You can also support the show by ordering the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt or the This Week in Linux shirt that I'm currently wearing right now on tuxdigital.com slash store. Plus, while you're there, check out all the other cool stuff we have like hats, mugs, hoodies, stickers, and so much more at tuxdigital.com slash store. I'll see you next time for another episode of your Source for Linux Canoes. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tunnell. I hope you're doing swell. Be sure to ring the notification bell. And until next time, I bid you farewell. <laughs>